Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Klein, and this is episode 47 of I Rolled a Natural 20 for My Agility Check. And I'd like to introduce my fabulous co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. Why, thank you, Janelle. And because you called me fabulous, I will gently point out that this is, in fact, greater than code. Uh, I am also very pleased to uh, introduce my recent birthday-having friend, Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Sam. Yesterday, I got to hold... Three snakes, a scorpion, a tarantula, and an alligator. But today, I get to hang out with y'all, especially <laughs> Coraline Ada and Eve. Hey, everybody. Um, we have a special guest today, Declan Whelan. Declan has been fascinated with technology for a very long time. He hand-soldered his first computer, graduated with the first computer engineering cohort at the University of Waterloo, and has been immersed in software ever since. Somewhere along the way, he got into extreme programming in the broader Agile movement, where he does coaching, speaking, and thought leadering. Declan is a board member of the Agile Alliance and is particularly proud of co-chairing on Agile, the Agile Alliance online conference, and for helping bring Deliver Agile to life. Welcome, Declan. Hello. Welcome, everyone. Declan, your bio is very interesting. I'm particularly interested in the fact that you hand-soldered your first computer, but what we always like to do when we start out is to get a sense of who you are as a person. And we start out by asking, what is your superpower and how did you discover it? That's a really great one. I sort of have this Canadian modesty thing going where I try, I'm thinking, you know, do I have any superpowers? Um, I, I like, maybe it's that I have a lot of strong powers, I think. And probably one of them would, would be around empathy. I find for various reasons, I tend to be quite good at picking up on where other people are at in interactions and looking to make, you know, outcomes from training and, and work be more productive because I feel I can engage people and meet them where they are. You're Canadian. That's really interesting. Does that mean you're going to be answering all the questions in both English and French? <laughs> no, it just means I'll, I'll you know, preface every response with, I'm sorry, but. <laughs> and, nice. And, Our fabulous and, uh, editor will have to edit the sorries out. <laughs> and, uh, and, and how thankful I am that we have the prime minister that we do right now. So, yes. Trade ya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, please. Please. Join the list. There are, you're about 20th on that list that have said the same thing. Yeah. But trying times for sure for everyone. So do you think you were always an empathetic person or is that something that you developed over the course of your career? No, I, I, I think it's something that was in our family. I, I remember having that, like, you know, as far back as I can remember. So I don't know if that's innate or whether it was something that was, you know, fostered growing up when I was really young. But yeah, I, I feel it's something that I carry with me. Interesting. It's easy for me to see empathy as something that's that's fostered. Is there an innate empathetic ability? There's certainly a lack of it, right? Witness sociopaths. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I like to think that empathy isn't something that you have, but something that you do. I think empathy, mm. you have to practice empathy. And as you practice empathy, you get better at empathy. Um, it has been demonstrated that empathy can be learned. I, I certainly of the of the camp that empathy can be learned, although I have not studied it. But that makes sense to me, and I, and I think it might be, you know, in my case and working with others that, uh, well, in my family, we weren't super expressive. So to understand and interact with the family, it was a matter of really picking up on a lot of the non-visual cues and so on, because we weren't. We were a very low conflict uh, family, so I think empathy sort of was it was a good breeding ground for empathy because you had to read between the lines on a lot of things. So I had a question here about this because I'm I'm listening to this and you know we have semantics of words like a, a word has a certain meaning attached to it. When you talk to different people and they're sort of describing something they're experienced and attributing a word to it, I, I feel like the meaning of what you're saying is valid in terms of, you know, pointing out this quality that is innate. It's just that empathy has this secondary meaning that is more skill oriented, I think, in addition to the innate thing. Because I'm thinking to like my past and I used to be really hypersensitive to emotional energy in the room, like just I felt like, you know, like going around to school, it felt like there were like a thousand eyeballs on me, right? And I can feel everything. And then after going through like this super tragic 
experience in my life and traumatizing, getting traumatized and shoving all this stuff down. And, you know, essentially from, I spent half my life trying to kind of be who everyone else wanted me to be because I was so focused on what everyone else was thinking. I couldn't feel myself. And then I kind of made this transition in life where I, where I flipped and I shut all that stuff down so that I couldn't feel stuff anymore in that, that innate ability kind of thing kind of went away, but it's very much attached to empathy. And so I I guess what I'm wondering is if you were to come up with a different word to describe this thing in your experience, what kind of words or definition would you use to describe the thing you're talking about? Maybe in terms of interactions, which is sort of where empathy would clearly show because you're interacting with other people, it would be about maybe just being in tune, being in sync with the dynamics that are going on around me in terms of where people are and what they want to accomplish and, and, and reading between the lines. That's a lot of words. And it might not even be, quote, empathy. Maybe that, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, you know, maybe it's not quite the right word. So Declan, you talked about how in your low-conflict family, you were required to learn to read between the lines on a lot of things. And that's a great skill to have. But can you really ask other people to do that? I mean, is that a good expectation to have for people you work with? <laughs> no, I, I, I think it was a... Uh... There there were some downsides to that. Like, for example, I find it difficult to be in high-conflict situations. But when I talk to other people, they say, well, everyone does. So I have no idea, you know, on my meter scale, you know, does it is it is it more difficult for me? So I think it's neither good nor bad to some extent. I think it just was the way I was raised. And I, I think you're much better to be able to – I think a higher level would be having – the courage and directness to have open, frank conversations when needed. And that's something that I definitely had to work at rather than that being sort of anywhere nurtured in my, in my youth. Yeah. Those explicit conversations that are open and frank, but not aggressive, not attacky. Those are something that we can fall back to because we're from different cultures and we didn't all grow up living together all the time. We don't have the same interpretations of those subtle cues or lack thereof. Well, there's a segue here into cross-cultural communication dynamics where as Americans, we value direct forthright communication and we also interact in a very egalitarian way where we we prefer to be called by our first names um, and other cultures have more highly contextual communication where somebody will say something that hints at something else and you're supposed to have all of this context in your head to be able to interpret that comment correctly. And those cultures can often also be more hierarchical, uh, more formal as well. Um, There's a lot of different axes that this goes along. What do you do when you're not naturally in sync with someone else or with other people on the team? Empathy? (laughs) But that's totally different from guessing. You don't guess with people you don't share a ton of context with. Right. And that's why I wanted to point that out is because as Americans, we tend to, well, I mean, everybody tends to think that everybody else thinks the way they do, right? But as Americans, we are often totally unaware that there are these other layers of conversation going on, especially when we interact with people who did not grow up in our culture. And so it's incumbent upon us as Americans to be aware that there are different cultural communication styles and try to have at least some idea first that there are different ones. And secondly, that, you know, what they are and how to uh, adapt your own communication style to deal with that, which is why I said empathy. (laughs) (laughs) Declan, have you run into that in your work where you're working with teams consisting of people from different cultures and having to adapt a communication style that's more inclusive of different ways of thinking? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I think it's becoming more prevalent. Um, you know, I live in Toronto, so there's a very high multicultural element to the, you know, to the makeup of, of society. And yeah, it, that happens a lot. And, you know, it, and it can cut not only along cultural lines, but gender lines and uh, power status within the organizations. But, you know, specifically around culture. Yeah. For example, I find where I have the challenge is more with, with cultures that are more direct, where it's expected to say what you really think. That, that direct conversation is, I, I find to be somewhat challenging, especially if you've got a lot of people in the room, because those people can tend to dominate. I, I, I was just thinking that, you know, what I've strived to be is just authentic, just showing up as me and 
cross-culturally, I think people get when you're being authentic. And if people trust you, that you don't have a hidden agenda, that you're being honest and frank, then I think that really helps cut through a lot of cultural barriers. And um, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch, but I think a lot of nonverbal cues tend to be more consistent across cultures. Doesn't always work. I notice uh, when I work with people from India, they'll often shake their head and say they put their head sideways, going side to side when they mean yes, and that that's the that's the signal that they're that they're following you. It's like a a subtle yes. I don't know if you've encountered that. That took a while because your brain is they're saying yes, but your brain is seeing no. So <laughs> that can be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right. As Americans. Do we have like a greater privilege to be ourselves, to express ourselves and be understood because of, well, basically Hollywood? I feel like especially being from the Midwest, my accent, freaking everybody can understand my accent because it's the accent that's used in television and movies. Yes, we absolutely benefit from cultural hegemony. Especially, I think, with English as the first language. I think, to me, like English first would be huge. I always have tremendous respect for people that are having deep conversations in their second or third language. My girlfriend is Swedish, and she puns multilingually, which is very impressive. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I have have a Swedish friend, and he practices by doing, like, cryptic crosswords in English. It's just like, I can't can't do a cryptic crossword in my own language. (laughs) So... So to go back to what we're talking about mm. with trying to read between the lines, trying to put yourself in someone else's position and trying to be aware of the sort of power dynamics that are inherent in some languages, how does that relate to the practice of agile methodologies, which are very rigid and very terse, at least in my experience? Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have termed them that way. I mean, I, th- I think maybe because things like stand-ups tend to be terse. Is that what you mean, Coraline? Yeah, in terms of stand-ups, where your communication style is very terse, but you have very important things to communicate, how can you ensure that you're being respectful of your audience? And also, how can your audience assure you that they're hearing what you're saying? Well, I actually think of Agile as being the opposite. Like To me, you do have these stand-ups, but they're really just a, you know, nothing of substance of any depth should be happening there. I mean, it's just more of like, what are you doing today? Here's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? And then it's like, oh, we're having an issue with X. Okay, well, let's take that offline. So the, you know, the empathetic conversations are likely to happen outside of the, that terse event. And, you know, maybe we're into some things like uh, retrospectives, which I feel are like, if you're going to do one agile practice, it should be a retrospective. And if you're facilitating retrospectives, which I often do, then you're really uh, have a responsibility to make sure all the voices in the room are heard. And, you know, now you're into a wide variety of facilitation techniques. I think Agile actually provides for much deeper conversations because things like a user story or a promise for a conversation. So I think my experience is that Agile done well is actually a very rich dynamic context for interaction i think pairing does that for me oh yeah or mob programming even to a wider extent you know with with teams yeah so we've talked about trying to be explicit and having room for larger conversations in order to convey across cultures what we mean but those cultures as janelle and sam are pointing out in the chat aren't just the cultures you grew up in. There are also the cultures you work in. Like, are you a tester? Are you a manager? Mm-hmm. Are you front end developer? Yeah. The classic cross-cultural barrier there, of course, is tech versus management, mm. which is often very much framed as a versus. Yes. Well, what, what might be interesting is I, I had the good fortune at Agile 2017 of going to an event which was called uh, Women in Agile. So before the conference, they had a, a half-day session, and it, they had a like a, a keynote which sounded awesome. Unfortunately, I missed the keynote. And then they um, had some open space sessions followed by some um, lightning talks that were mentor talks. And it was really interesting as a man being present there and sort of the dynamic that puts for, say, me as the, quote, privileged one in that 
in that context. So to some extent, I think there were mirrors with that and sort of the tech management role where, or the cross-cultural one where, you know, you sit in a privileged position and you're working with people that may, for whatever reasons, not feel as empowered as you might. And I, I hosted a session, an open space work session, really, on, on how men could become better allies. And I think some of those things that emerged from that session, I think, would be good insights to human nature that I think would support both not only gender diversity, but other forms of differences across people. So what are some of those? <laughs> I, I guess the first was, and this is, this is something that was, and I'm, I'm repeating back what I learned. <laughs> and one of them was, and it was sort of an in, insight to me, is that just to recognize that we all have biases and to have biases to be human. It's not a bad thing. It just is. If you're a human, you have biases. And being uh, aware as an individual that you may carry those biases. And for example, when we started the session, it was, it was named How Men Can Become Better Allies. And then we quickly changed the title, How Everyone Can Become Better Allies, because it was pointed out that, hey, actually, some of the biases that I might hold around, say, uh, women in technology, women would might have those very same biases. So it's a, it, there could well be a societal bias. So that was sort of insightful for me to realize that, hey, it's the biases that I carry might actually be shared by others, including the people that I might feel are sort of, quote, um, in, in a less powerful situation here. So that was that was sort of insightful for me to glean that. But there were sort of lot, lots of little things that came up. And one thing, and some of them are just boiled down to like good facilitation, like have everyone speak as soon as you can in some sort of organized session. So like within the first few minutes, just make sure everyone has had an opportunity to have a voice and, um, you know, just say something, whether it's just a single word or a complete thought, giving room for people to speak soon and early. And one that I, one that I noticed in the conference, I don't know if you've ever seen this, I ended up being at a, a table with with a woman who I knew quite well, and this this uh, guy, very nice guy, sat happened to sit in between us, and then the three of us paired up, or, or I guess not paired, the three of us worked together on this exercise, and I noticed that this that this guy who I didn't know would actually direct most of his attention and interest to me and what I was saying rather than the woman, and he had no reason to do that because we were complete strangers to him. So I could, I, I was sort of aware he was probably making some unconscious bias towards somehow treating me as a more credible voice or something than, than the woman. So what I, what I would continually do in those, in those interactions is keep, I would look at her. I would ask her for her opinion. If she said something, I would say, Oh, that's a really good insight. Can you tell us more? So really trying to dial up and, and, and try to focus this other individual on the other voice in the room. So I think some of it, some of this uh, cross-cultural um, and and perhaps gender diversity is really about being present and 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 watching and understanding where the dynamics are going and try to pull other people in and redirect other people to be aware of those other people. Because if you're present in the moment, then you can notice your own bias and that of other people and choose to direct your attention and to compensate. Like you were talking about, you also modeled the behavior that you wanted to see, which I thought was was really interesting. It does take extra brain power to do that. Yeah, mm -hmm. thanks. It seems to go back to one of the initial points, too, about empathy and authenticity and creating bridges between people. Seems like you could put it and put, you know, these same kind of ideas and principles in terms of the things that you learned, you know, with your, your superpowers. Do you have any thoughts uh, with regards to how you see the skills and things that you've brought into the table in how you see yourself using these superpower abilities that you learned, like, can you relate those things back together again? Well, I'm not sure. I, I guess I would say as I've gone through my career, I don't know if you've, if you've experienced this, but you're, when I was younger, I would be always trying to be the person that people wanted me to be. And I want to be the expert in this or the, you know, I'm, you know, not good at that or whatever it might be. But primarily it's about trying to look the way that people are expecting you to behave. And uh, what I've noticed in my career is that the more truly authentic I can be with um, and, and pulling those skills in, so it's truly a me showing up, then those generally lead to better outcomes. 
So one one thing that I have really learned is has worked really well for me is just asking for permission when I'm unsure. So, you know, would you be open to some feedback right about now? Or um, would you mind if I jumped in on that point? Because one one challenge as an ally, I think often, you know, as, as a male, say, in a gender diversity thing is I don't want to be sticking up for people that are more than happy to stick up for themselves. Thank you very much. So when I feel like the situation demands and I feel like I might want to interject or or redirect because of some cultural or diversity imbalance, I'll often find a way to ask permission from that person because they it, ultimately I'm trying to support them. That's beautiful. That like elevates them into a position of respect just by your example. We talk about authenticity, but that's like so abstract. I mean, what's something that you do or say differently when you're being authentic versus when you're not? That's a great question. I think one thing that I I find works well for me is to really show vulnerability because I think people put up a facade and if you're able to show, hey, I'm let's say, you know, I'm I'm quite technical. And if I screw up with some technical thing, like I mistype something or make a coding error, I just make a joke of it. Oh, silly me. Look at that. So you're showing that, you know, I'm not trying to have a facade of being the expert, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we're all human and we're just all here doing our best. I think showing vulnerability to me has been really effective for people to then say, hey, then it's okay for me to just be who I am and show up how I choose to show up. That'd be one example of, so, say, practical uh, authenticity. Okay. So pointing out your own mistakes and, like, not freaking out over them. That's one example of authenticity and vulnerability. Yep. And, you know, I'm I'm really good at having really bad jokes. So I don't hesitate to have, <laughs> like, really bad jokes that people groan over, right? And then my lack of humor becomes sort of a, another joke. And it sort of then becomes you know, infectious and people find that, Hey, it's okay. If I say a bad joke and then a lot of barriers are just dropped and people just start to talk as humans rather than fulfilling a role that they perceive they need to in the, in the context. It seems to me that both of those ways of being authentic are a way of addressing a power imbalance or a power dynamic that you might have. I find that if I'm pairing with someone with less experience than I have, I actually will intentionally make mistakes to prove to them, to show them that I'm not infallible and that everyone makes a mistake and they shouldn't feel ashamed of making mistakes themselves. I think that kind of, it's important to, to demonstrate that kind of vulnerability, to demonstrate that it's okay not to know everything and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to get things wrong and that no matter where you are in your career, those things are going to continue to happen to you. That sounds like something that Arlo Belshi said once, uh, where he was talking about how when he joins a new team, he will try as quickly as possible to force the team into a failure mode to make something go wrong, uh, because he finds that making something presumably small and trivial go wrong is a good way to build trust in each other and in everybody's abilities to pull themselves back out of that failure. Yeah, yeah. Being able to deal with failure is so much more important than preventing it. Failure is inevitable, right? Right. Yeah, I and, think that... And Declan just pointed out that failure is also a tool. Yeah, Coraline, I, I really, you know, resonate with your with what you're saying there about showing vulnerability. I, I, I must say, I've done that too. I have manufactured failures to show vulnerability. I, I prefer not to force it because people might sense that you've actually constructed this scenario. So, so like, so maybe it's sort of ironic, right? So I prefer just to be authentic. And if something goes wrong, just deal with it in the moment. Another example that happened to me a, a while ago, which was interesting was I was, I was speaking, I was working with a, with a, a management team and they were like, you know, I was explaining something to them and they say, okay, so how are we going to do this? And I was like, I have no idea. And they were like, they were stunned. It's like, oh, but I thought you were the agile expert and say, no, no, we're, we're, you know, we're cutting some new ground here. No one's ever done exactly what we're doing. So we're going to figure this out together. I have some ideas, but let's figure this out together. So, you know, that's another way to show vulnerability is that you don't have to have the answers to everything. And, I always and, say, I don't know. Yeah, that is a good example. 
you know, especially if you're in a situation where you're brought in as a quote expert and, you know, early on in the conversation, you say, I don't know that I think opens up and models that, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to figure this out together. It seems to me that the sign of expertise is a willingness to collaborate and learn and experiment, not expertise being always knowing the answer. Yeah. Part of our job is to be not afraid to fail. Ooh, ooh, okay. So we talked earlier about uh, empathy and how it, uh, the way I put it in the chat was that it, there's a, there's a verb and a noun. And yes, I know empathize is the verb form, whatever. But, um, <laughs> as I was trying to, as I was trying to sketch out my question, it, I realized that empathy and ally are both words that people think of not necessarily as nouns, but as attributes of a person. And rather than verbs, I think we should push people towards viewing empathy and ally as a behavior. Mm. And I'm wondering, is the word agile another one of those that falls into that pattern? Is agile something that you are or something that you do? I, I think a lot of agile, you know, where it does not work well is because it is a doing in the sense of following the practices and, you know, the cargo cult of, of, of agile. And, um, um, oh, yeah, so I'm in the U.S., so I can say agile. In Canada, of course, I would say agile. But, um you know, certainly, you know, my experience is it's much more about maybe it, it is a it is a lot about mindset in terms of, of agile, which I do think of as sort of more noun like like present, like the way that you act. But I think perhaps, you know, going beyond the superficial superficiality of implementing practice, the acts that would occur in terms of conversations and the way that you plan and interact and pair and, and it, from that behavioral perspective, I would agree that agile should be more of a, of here's what we do around here to succeed rather than a set of practices just to distinguish those two different levels of doing, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's the behaviors that people think that performing them makes them agile, which are completely distinct from the actual behaviors like learning and adapting to feedback. <laughs> I, I'm just listening to this and I have my feathers are ruffling a little bit here because I think one of the problems with agile is the name agile and that fundamentally there's like this idea of, you know, from a systems thinking level of this emergent behavior that we're trying to describe of agility. And if we are agile, if we do the agile things, then there's an expectation that these emergent system level properties will um, exist. And so I see people trying to map this description of a system into like a first person dynamic. And then they're doing all the things and they're being all the things. And agility is an emergent from that particular system. Like there's a huge disconnect. I mean, if you think about how most organizations run, it's more like a, a barge that can't steer whatsoever <laughs> than, you know, agile. And so it's like, I feel like there's this huge disconnect, not only between the being, doing, and as you're saying, the two different types of doing, but like just a problem with a lack of words and ways to describe the system that we're trying to create. I guess, I don't know if that's a question. It's just, I'm curious if you're, if you have any thoughts on that, if that jumped into your head. Yeah. Uh, maybe a key part of, of truly being agile. And I say truly sort of with air quotes is, is the notion of, well, what is the system that can work for us? So rather than following an agile system, what is the system that we can construct together that's going to achieve what we mutually want to get done. And so the, the, the system is in effect ours to build. And I think maybe being agile is really being intentional about understanding the system that is and the system that you want and learning and iterating your way to that future state. I love that. That was beautiful. I like to think of us not as system builders anymore, but as system movers. Mm -hmm. That's really true because there's always an as is. <laughs> it's what yep. where where we are now and and how do we steer towards what we really want? I've I've heard a distinction made at different companies I've worked for, where people are kind of apologetic about their agile methodology, and they'll say something like, "Well, we're not capital A agile, we're lowercase a agile," and I wonder if that's an attempt to say, you know, we're not 
we're not rigid practitioners. We're not cargo culting. We're actually trying to adapt to real working conditions. Although none of those companies actually, I would say, demonstrated agility. Why do people make that distinction, do you think? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I've, I, I often hear it couched. Maybe it's the same what you've heard, Coraline, but I also heard like we're not true agile is what I'll often hear. We're, and I, I don't know if you've heard that. And, you know, maybe big, big A agile to me is like, is like the doing in the sense of we are doing these practices. And to me, small A agile means we're really adapting and our, the way that we work aligned with the principles of the Agile Manifesto. It, it's like we're, we're living and breathing that way of, of, of working. So that's what I think people mean by big A versus little A. And to me, it's like, you know, I, I love to, for example, start with new teams and just do Kanban rather than say Scrum and say, hey, we're just going to put up a Kanban board here to reflect the system that we have. And the way that we just want to reflect where we currently are. And, you know, we don't need to do all of the agile A practices, but let's just start to think of how we can, you know, what is our purpose? Where are we trying to go? And how can we improve as, as we go? So that to me, that would might be the distinction between little A agile and big A agile. Is that what, what you've noticed, Caroline? Something like that? Yeah. Um, and Kanban is a great example of, of that because in my experience, when you do Kanban, you're not doing sprints anymore. And I just remember this one company I worked for that I think was treating agile methodologies as it was a scar that had grown over an organizational wound. They had development practices in place that were actually harmful. And their remedy for it was, oh, we'll adapt Agile and all of our organizational problems will go away. And they were so rigid about it. And they did all of the recommended practices for Agile methodology. And they didn't try to adapt the practices to the organizational culture or, more importantly, the organizational culture to the practices. And that made a really awful working environment. Because all these things that we were doing just felt like unnecessary process. I, I've seen that too. And I think people draw a big equal sign between agile and scrum, right? They think, oh, we're, we're doing agile. And that means that, you know, because we're doing all the scrum stuff, you know, I like to point out to people, you know, go look at the manifesto. What specific practices are recommended from the agile manifesto? And I don't think that there are any other than statements like, you know, business and, and uh, developers should work together daily, things like that. But there's no specific dogma, if you will, around practice. And then if you go look at, say, Scrum, then you can ask people, well, what does Scrum say about our engineering practices? Well, it says nothing. <laughs> so if you follow, if you actually want to go down the dogma route and you go to the sort of the original material around that, you'll find that there's very little around specific practice and it's more around the principles and the values and how we work. But I think that's hard for people to potentially see in the larger context because they've installed the agile, right? They have their plan and their training program. And I think that's a problem. Where did that even come from? Where did the, how did these practices get associated with agile when, as you pointed out, the agile manifesto doesn't dictate practices? I think it's very natural because day one, you guys are going to be, you folks there, I'll try to get some more gender diverse terms in here. You folks are now an agile team and you can ask them, okay, start to think and behave and act in a collaborative way. And people would look at you probably, you know, with glazed eyes and you say, oh, well, we should have a stand up every morning for 15 minutes. And we're going to ask these two questions. Oh, that sounds a lot simpler. Let's do that. So I think in terms of starting down the agile road, I think practices are good because at least gets people starting to at least interact and behave. I think it's important that they be exposed to the values and principles, but when they actually start, I think people need to start to do and having guidance around good practice, I think is helpful. That's why I think, you know, as an, I'm an agile coach. So I think maybe the difference might be, you know, if you have good coaching and, and those coaches don't need to be people that have that title, but people who've been there before and are able to guide and so on. If you have those people on your team, then I think you're fine just to start with the root, the road practices because in between those practices is where the, where the real 
agility is going to bear in, but you're giving people a frame to work in. The danger is when people start with those frames, but they haven't had the experience or the insights to really make it work uh, within those teams, you know, then it becomes cargo cult. And especially if that's then scaled across, like all the teams need to behave in the same way. Now you're really constraining behavior. So I guess I'm just trying to say a lot of the practices, rote practices can be good to at least start the teams working in a certain way, hopefully as a, as a, as a stepping stone to something better. And the, the danger is people get trapped into that step one. I really think what you said there about adopting a practice across teams being a warning sign, that's, that's what I heard you say at least, is a very important point because every team develops its own culture and every team has its own challenges and how you respond to those challenges in a way that makes you productive is going to necessarily be different. Yeah. And people really love consistency. You know, if you have 12 teams, it would just be awesome if they all had the same length sprints and they all measured progress in the same way. So they, people feel that there's a lot of uh, benefit from being consistent. And I think there can be. And then I say, well, if that's true, what are those benefits? Let's talk about those. And then you, if you can move people away from the practice that you want to be consistent and instead start to shift the conversation to the outcomes that you want to be consistent, then you can have sort of consistent outcomes. They say, okay, well, let's strive for that. And then ask each team, how are they going to achieve those common set of outcomes that we want? For example, reduce time to market or, or quality or whatever it is. But simply saying, oh, we're all going to use JIRA for tracking our work and that consistency will lead to something, then explore that something. And I find that's a good way to sort of attempt to cut through that fallacy about common practice. I love that. Yeah. Wayne isn't here, so I have to I have to do the obligatory um, reference quote. Emerson said, "A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of liberal minds." Uh, <laughs> the important word there is foolish consistency. <laughs> I love what you said about consistency being centered on the outcomes rather than the process. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder if that's a failure on the part of agile proponents of selling agile to management. Are they setting unrealistic expectations or are they not going far enough to explain the focus on the outcome rather than on the process? I think you're probably right. I don't have a lot of experience at the executive level or with large agile rollouts, if you will. So I don't have a lot of experience to understand, you know, how to do that better. But, you know, I work with a consultancy called Lean Intuit and uh, Chris Chapman, one of my cohorts there, keeps saying, you know, management goes first, which I love. Leadership goes first. So if you want these teams to be agile, then we are going to start as a leadership team to work in an agile way. Let's make our work visible. Let's have daily standups, et cetera. So I think... You know, there's, there's this danger with these agile rollouts where, oh, well, we'll bring in, we'll fix up those teams and those people will do the agile. Well, and we'll just see faster time to market. So getting the leadership much more engaged at the purpose and the outcomes we want and having them demonstrate the behaviors that they want. I think that's what is sort of undervalued or missed in some of the larger agile rollouts that I've experienced myself. I love this Strive for common outcomes, not common practices. I am so going to tweet that. And what you said about locality, about each team having its own culture, that's also important. And and if you had 12 teams and you took the one that you personally find most productive and want the other teams to be like, and you take their practices and impose them on other teams, then you've just magnified the disparity because those practices work for that team. And if you force the other teams to use those practices, it's actually a disadvantage for those teams compared to being able to develop the practices that work for them personally. So you're making it worse. Yeah. My brother is an architect, like not a software architect, but a real architect. And they had... They were, <laughs> the, nice. They were, you know, bricks and mortar kind of guy. And uh, they were doing an exercise around teamwork. And they basically had a large group broken up into small teams and each team sort of had this puzzle. They had to con construct a, the, their instructions were to get everyone back safely. 
And they had to build this sort of lunar thing with Lego and then bring an astronaut who was a little Lego stick figure back. And they couldn't move until uh, they couldn't move their ship until it was completely assembled according to some specifications. And there was some complexity. And the interesting thing was his group turned out to be the only group that ever successfully completed the mission. And the reason was <laughs> that ever, when they divided people up into teams, people just focused on their team and they said, hey, we won. But the instructions was everyone gets back safely. So the exercise was not around trying to complete the task. It was about how are you going to share your information with the other teams so that everyone in the room wins. And I think maybe that's sort of what I would think about with Agile at the team level. It's about like, how do you, rather than saying this team is working really well, you guys should be doing that. It's about how do you promote cross learning across these teams so that they can learn from each other. In the same way that we promote pair programming is that I don't hear, you know, how do we make sure that lunch and learns or maybe guest pairings or things like that to promote cross team learning would be sort of the direction that I would go to promote the, rather. So I guess it's sharing the learning rather than the practice. That's cool. I love that everyone gets back safely of this is not a competition. And that gets back to where we started with communication and empathy. And there's a falsehood that comes up sometimes in some groups where I'm talking and four people understand me, but two people don't, or maybe just one person doesn't. And I'm like, well, they understood. So clearly it's not me, but that's wrong. As a person trying to share learning, if one person doesn't understand, that's still on me. Just because those other four happen to be able to read between the lines, maybe we share a lot more context. I'm the one who has the ability to slow down and add nuance or whatever it takes. Like the people with the Legos who had to proactively go and share information. Yeah, I agree. Declan, was there anything else you'd like to bring up and talk about? Well, the one thing that I've been, you, you know, to take sort of a, you know, a completely orthogonal tack is this idea that technical health. And I've been um, thinking a lot and, and, and working a lot around technical debt. And I've found it to be sort of a, a very powerful metaphor, but a metaphor that I think has sort of somewhat trapped us into a way of thinking. And that thinking sounds something like, well, I'm carrying around this big bag of technical debt. We really ought to go fix up that crap that we built last month or last year. And it's this albatross or this ball and chain thing that we're dragging around with us. And I, I do want to make one slight distinction. I know people will always um, ask me, well, it's always good to go into technical. You know, there are definitely contexts where technical debt is good. And I agree with that. I'm really talking about technical debt that's really hampering value delivery, where it's really, you know, crushing the teams. And what I started to do is start to change the conversation to technical health. So how do we build an infrastructure and a way of coding and set of practices that enable us to have a technically healthy organization where we can sort of deliver on will? And then technical health becomes the ability to deliver value and technical debt becomes the things in the code that are stopping you from doing that. This is relatively recent for me. I've been thinking about it for a while, but I've only been talking about it more recently. I think it's a lot more powerful for just to have the conversation. So, for example, rather than talking about going to a CEO and saying we really ought to clean up that crap, it's more like, you know, if we really want to be competitive in the future, there's some things that we could do to improve how we deliver, you know, how, how, how quickly and effectively software comes out. We should probably invest in that just like you would invest in making sure that your assembly line is working really well as, a, as an analogy. I think just switching the term from debt to health sort of taps into positive psychology where if you look at in intervening with some mental uh, health issues, and you know we all have them either ourselves or within our families, it turns out that when you focus on making the things that are problematic go away, be it anxiety or depression, and you're able to get people through sort of traditional techniques to sort of a spot where I'm okay now, I'm 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 okay, but if you can actually shift to a positive psychology stance where you're really trying to dial up what makes people happy, then people come up with far better clinical outcomes. And I think something similar can happen with our teams. So rather than focusing on removing this bad stuff, get people thinking about how do we amplify what we want, which is, you know, in, in an agile context, you know, effective value delivery. And then it, that just shifts the whole tone of the conversation 
and we don't have to talk about past sins or these other people wrote this crappy code or whatever it is. So no, let's look forward. And how do we build a healthy code base and a healthy de- uh, you know, deployment pipeline, et cetera? And I think that even at that, that's just sort of like the level one of the difference. And I'm finding that even simply just having conversations is being uh, enabled by just using the term technical health rather than technical debt. I think it's leading to better conversations about what's really going on. I'm really fascinated by this pivot that you pointed out of, you know, when you focus about on problems going away, your psychology shifts to this kind of avoidance pattern, this ball and chain of the technical debt that's always dragging us back. Versus when you focus on technical health and you shift to this positive psychology of how do we dial up what makes us happy? How do we amplify what it is we want? I love the correlation with the kind of underlying psychological shift in how the semantics we choose end up affecting that. And so looking at the world through this lens, how do we amplify what we want? I love that question. It's a really powerful question. And if you were to answer that question yourself, looking back across, you know, all of your experiences, what are the things that you found to be core to amplifying what you want? Can you even define what it is you want? I mean, in one level, value delivery, right? But what is it that we want in an organization? What is it that we want in a culture? How do we amplify what we want? I think it would be start with, with identifying what we want and just being clear about what that is. So having a clear sense of purpose and that purpose can be, you know, and it should be a variety of things. It could be what does, what do our customers expect of us? What does, you know, who are our internal stakeholders? But, you know, what's just as important to me is like, what, what do I want and what do you want as individuals from this work that we're going to do together? So to some extent, I think step one is just sort of having a clear understanding and open dialogue around what it is that we want. And then I think the conversation gets a little bit easier. Then if you've got clarity around that, then you're, you can ask things like, how can we measure that? So, you know, one that I really like to put into place with teams is team happiness. You know, how happy are we? working here and where would we like to be and talk about that. And then when you see things like our happiness is at a three and we'd really prefer to be at a four out of five, then, okay, well, what can we do next week to dial up that happiness? So I don't know if there's any prescriptive thing, but I guess I would say, yeah, just be clear about what you want and retrospect regularly on how you're doing. I like the technical health instead of technical debt. And you can think of it as debt when you're choosing whether to take it on, sure. But after that, don't feel bad about that sloppy code. And then you don't have to fix it just because it's ugly. Fix only what's getting in your way. Because it's not about measuring the debt. It's about moving forward. Exactly. That brings to mind one of the tools that a lot of companies use is, um, at least in the review world, is something called Code Climate, which assigns a letter grade to code. And some things end up being an F, and I think they automatically get classified as technical debt. Like Jessica said, if it's not in your way, if it's not code that gets executed much or gets touched much, leave it alone. That's not really what's standing in the way of progress, and that's really not what's standing in the way of productivity. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and the reason why I like the health metaphor to some extent is it gets our brain thinking about it in a different way. So, for example, I think everyone would be – uh, so, you know, back to the code climate example, you know, if you're not all A's, then you suck. Like, I mean, that's, that's a, you know, a very super, you know, superficial uh, read that someone could take of those metrics. But then if you think about health and think about people, right? Like, you know, my father, who's, who's 83, you know, his definition of good health is going to look far different than a world-class marathon runner. They both care about health, but in their context, being healthy means very different things. And so rather than having an absolute number, you can start to think, get people to think about like what's healthy for us. And the fact that we have an F on this code module, who cares? If you haven't changed it for 18 months, it's not slowing us down. And it doesn't mean that you have to be all A's. You know, maybe where your team is are because you've got some legacy code. Maybe, maybe the code metrics sort of suck, but that's where we are. And how do we get healthier? It's more about the progression to health as a continuum rather than some absolute number, which an ABCD sort of implies. Yeah, I really like this focus on what are the outcomes that we want and what do we need to do to get there? 
Um, and for me, the thing that's coming up is the idea of the campsite rule, which is this uh, this practice that whenever you touch a bit of code, you leave it at least a little bit better than it was when you found it. And that's a nice incremental way of dealing with the technical debt that's actually in your way on your way to technical health uh, without really stopping and focusing on every th- single thing that's wrong with it, right? Yeah, that definitely as a, as a technical coach, that's my number one mantra is you know the Boy Scout rule or the Cub Scout rule. Well, yeah, one th- the other level that I've been thinking about with technical health is I, when I first thought of it, and I, I, I'm working with a, a, an initiative at the Agile Alliance, by the way. So this is not this 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 idea of technical uh, health came out from really a group discussion. I happen to be the one that talks the most about it of our group. But it's also when I first thought about it, we thought about it. We thought of it as just being this positive psychology switch. Okay, let's just make technical health be the inverse of technical debt. And I now think of it more nuanced. I think of it as technical debt is something that we can measure in terms of looking at the code, but technical health is probably something more like our capacity to deliver value and meet our purpose. So when you start to look at things from a technical health perspective, and then you're able to look at technical debt as an artifact, you can start to say, okay, we have this measure And I have things in my team and my organizations that are either increasing or decreasing that technical debt. And now I can apply sort of systems thinking to the dynamics that's happening in my organization. And I'll give you sort of like a concrete example. I think that one of the biggest contributors to technical debt that I've seen has been, you know, project planning horizons, where you're bringing in teams to work on code for, say, three months, and then they're off. And they're no longer accountable for the code after they delivered their three month deadline. But the rest of the organization has to live with that code for, you know, years down the road. But nothing in their system is actually taking that into account because all of the budgeting and resourcing, which is a word I hate, but assigning people to work is all done with a very short horizon timeline. So the technical debt problem is not those damn coders who just keep writing crap. It's actually a systemic issue with the way the organization uh, plans and budgets and organizes people around the work. And that's the root cause. So you can have the clean up the code as you go is a great practice. But if, if the systemic issue is this project driven mentality for building products, then you'll never really get what you want. So I'm liking that technical health really allows us to bring a systems thinking view to our organizations and using technical debt as sort of a measure of the effectiveness of that system. We're doing something pretty interesting at Stitch Fix right now. This is a a new thing we're trying out. We put together what's called a sustainability and stability team. And that team, every larger team within your organization devotes 20% of its people to an SMS sub-team. And their charge is to increase the stability of systems and to make the code more sustainable. So it's not really a matter of addressing technical debt, but rather looking at what the pain points are. Like one of the big projects we're undertaking is getting off of a shared database. And that's not something you can really do incrementally. And it's not something that's say, it's not a, a stop the world, let's fix all of these things kind of practice either. But it's a way of addressing system health that I think is, you know, a pretty interesting approach to solving a problem. And the people who are on that team rotate out. You're on a, uh, on a six week mm-hmm. rotation. So there are goals that the team sets, but the people who are implementing it rotate in and out. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about an approach like that, or if you've, if you've seen that before, if you have alternate approaches to how dev organizations could take on that kind of work. I'm going to write that down because I have that has not come up in my experience, nor have we talked about it. So actually, I would expect that that would work really well. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how it sounds like a really powerful way to work to me from how you describe it. How does it actually work, Caroline? Um, it's a fairly new practice, so it's too early to say whether it's successful or not. But I think it's a really interesting idea, and I'm really hopeful that it does work out. And one of my teammates at Stitch Fix actually pitched a proposal to RubyConf to talk about this particular approach. And I'm really hoping that her talk gets accepted yeah. because I'd like to see some conversations around that. I've seen a, a different way of handling in the past where a team will say, oh, we'll spend 15% of our sprint on fixing technical debt. And that, that seems like a terrible 
way to solve that problem. That just never happens. No, it really doesn't. Yeah, I've seen things like that, or we take one ticket per week, or the other practice I've seen is we'll take these hardening sprints, something like that, where we'll have a sprint at the end devoted to technical debt. And um, I think each, I've seen each of those work, but I really, what I like about, well, I, I've worked with a lot of smaller companies, so they don't have this issue of having sort of multiple teams and dealing with perhaps some some common challenges. But what what I like about what you're saying is that you're bringing that whatever you're bringing the knowledge of the real pain into that support team and then bringing it back out again. Right. My prediction would be that you would see a lot of value from that because it's explicit knowledge movement across those team boundaries by swapping people in and out. So, yeah, one thing I'm curious about with uh, six, with everybody doing six-week stints and presumably people rotating in and out on different timelines, I'll be really curious to hear about how continuity gets maintained on that team. I would imagine that there's going to be a lot more focus on uh, providing or, or building and maintaining artifacts like a readme or a document of principles or you know some sort of project plan. I'm curious to see how that shakes itself out. There are some overarching goals that the team has in place the shared getting off the shared database is like a very long process and no one team of people in a six month stint is going to accomplish in a six week stint is going to accomplish that so the team has some overarching goals but i think the interesting thing is with rotating people in and out they're addressing different areas of the code base that maybe haven't been raised to a certain level of awareness or attention um, within the, the greater engineering organization. So they're, they're bringing their local knowledge of particular aspects of the code base to bear and saying, fixing this issue here, fixing this code here, or the design of the system here, it's going to contribute to the overall health of the greater code base. And I think that ties in to what Declan was saying about being management first. Someone in a situation like that does have to set the goals and someone does have to create the project plan and someone does have to commit to 20% of the people on the team doing an endeavor like this, that's not going to happen from the bottom up. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. It's technical debt is sort of this in, in large organizations is such a huge impediment. I mean, I, I, I'll often, I look for simple measures with, with teams like how happy are you working with the code? That's a good measure. And, um, and how much, is the code slowing you down now? And then you can optimize on that. For example, I also asked one other question, which is how much of your time do you spend building new value versus, say, dealing with troubleshooting or defect tickets? And I'm sometimes shocked at what I hear. I, I, I worked with one team where I calculated their effectively their value delivery was 4% of what their capacity was because they were spending so much time fighting production fires, and they estimate they could go five times faster if the code was well factored. Now, those are you know somewhat not scientific measures, but it certainly gives you a sense. If a team says that their capacity basically is 4% to deliver new value, that's a serious problem, and it warrants a strong response from the organization. There is one way to measure that, and I've done this at a company before, where you look at pull requests, and if the pull request is referencing an issue, assuming you're doing good issue mm. tracking, you can actually say, you know, this pull request, we got five pull requests in the sprint and three of them were, you know, fixes for issues and measure value delivery that way. Yep. But I think that's, that's a really good measure of developer productivity and happiness and health and code base health is how much value is being delivered within X period of time. Because probably if your developers are frustrated, if the code base is resisting efforts to change, that's going to impact that metric. And it's not a developer problem. You can't say our developers are not being productive enough. That points to a larger system issue, right? Also, a few minutes ago, Janelle was asking, what do we want to achieve? What will make us happy? And you can look at it that way, just... What technical changes could I make that would make me ex more excited to come to work in the morning? Exactly. So at the end of every call, we like to uh, wrap up with uh, reflections, which can be something that stood out to us uh, as particularly interesting, something that we're going to take 
and carry forward, or it can be a call to action for our listeners, uh, anything along those lines. And uh, since I haven't thought of mine yet, how about Jessica? You go first. Sweet. The biggest thing for me is strive for common outcomes, not common practices. That's so healthy. It's like, instead of use this framework, it's support this API. I was really struck by a sort of side comment that you made, Declan, about how some situations, whether it be a user story or something that someone says in stand-up, should be taken as a promise for a conversation. And I will be thinking about like how we can be more explicit about that. I often hear corporate speak of, we'll take that offline. And I think that is just a way of deferring a conversation that maybe will never actually happen. But if we can be explicit about making a promise to have a conversation, that would impact so much productivity and in terms of not developing the wrong thing or developing in the wrong context, as well as happiness, because you get the sense that your concern is being addressed and that you're being heard. So I'm going to think about how to be more explicit in promises like that. I've been thinking back on this conversation we had about this power imbalance and with culture and leadership through modeling. And one thing that really stood out to me was this idea of asking permission. And, you know, because of this power imbalance that's just kind of there in leadership, I'm thinking about some mistakes that I made of when I probably should have asked for permission and I didn't. And I ended up causing all kinds of problems and relationships blowing up because I didn't ask, you know, those questions. And so that's sort of like dissonance blowing up in my brain right now is like, is those regretful decisions that you wish you could kind of go back and do things differently if you could do it all over again. One of the things that I've, I've learned as a leader is being a leader in a way makes you blind in a way that, you know, you don't think you're going to be blind until you go and you make mistakes because you don't realize that you have power in this relationship dynamic. And one of the things that happens because of that relationship dynamic is often disrespect on the other side of the wall, on the us versus them. And one of the ways that you can correct that if you're on the side of power is to ask permission. And what that does is it elevates the people that you're talking to, to a position of respect. I talked earlier about the difference between attributes and behaviors, and I think that's an important one. Certainly, it's important for me to remember in my personal life as well as development. But at the risk of just copying Jessica, I do think that that focus on identifying and clarifying what are the outcomes that we want is really possibly the most important thing we've talked about today, at least for me. I notice as well that this works for team practices, and that's what we were talking about. That's the context we were talking about it in. But it's also really one of the fundamental things that makes agile development uh, work and be worth pursuing as well, because you're focusing on what are the outcomes that you want for your users and the value that they're getting out of the system. So it's a, I, I always like finding those principles that work in multiple contexts, and that seems like a new one for me. So thank you. Re reflecting on this conversation was, for me, really interesting because the first thing that came to mind is like my mind was expanded. I really tried to listen and really understand where you were coming from, and I think it you've really enriched as, as, as a group sort of my understanding or helped me clarify my thinking around some things. And, uh, you know, particularly around empathy and behavior, maybe what I'm getting at is a call to action for teams that are out there. You know, how, how could you have conversations similar to the ones that we're having with your teams and, and whether it's around empathy or diversity or common outcomes, you know, how can you have more effective conversations with your teams? Could you plan a retrospective? to talk about common outcomes or technical health or diversity on your team. So that's really what I'd like to say. Like, how do you take these conversations and translate them into actions on your team? So your call to action is figure out how to do that? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Can, could you, can <laughs> you plan a retrospective that could cover some topic that may have resonated with you on this podcast and bring that conversation back to your team and organization? 
Now is the time when we remind you that Greater Than Code is a listener-supported podcast. We like to do a patron shout-out. Our newest patron this month is Declan Whelan. <laughs> Thanks, Declan, for contributing at the $10 level. The important thing, though, is if you contribute to our Patreon at any level, then you get access to our Slack team. And it's my favorite Slack team. Everybody is super nice. Highly recommend. More listener support lets us do more shows. Currently, we're doing three episodes a month. We would love to do four. Jessica, if someone wants to be a patron, how can they do that? Is there a site on the internet that you can go to? Yes, it is. I rolled a natural 20 on my agility check.com. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's patreon.com slash greater than code, but I appreciate your enthusiasm <laughs> all the same. <laughs> Declan, thank you so much for joining us today. We've had a lot of fun and really um, dove into um, what it means to be agile and I learned a lot from the conversation so thank you so much and I look forward to continuing the conversation on Slack thank you very much for having me I really enjoyed learning from all of you and I felt very welcome so thank you 